Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. You have to have that robust backup so that when the time comes, it's there to back you up, right? It's easy to devalue that when things are working well and things have been working well for you know years and years and years. But then you never know when the rainy day is going to come. And if you're not prepped, then you're going to be uh, caught flat-footed. The whole goal of Industry 4.0 is to arrive at that destination. There's a bunch of things that they want to hit by 2030. We've got most of this decade to make mistakes and get better and learn and learn to work with each other so that we can arrive at that destination. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, connected devices, and the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today, the Godfather returns. We've got Rob Tiffany, and we're going to be taking questions from the audience. We're also joined by Bill Flaherty. Bill is the hardware practice lead here at Vary, formerly of MIT's Lincoln Labs. And the three of us are going to be going through some live questions from the audience. Bill, my man, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And Rob, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be here. Oh, also, happy birthday, dude. What should we get you? Oh, man. What should you get me? What do you think you need, man? I'm at the age now where I'm starting to dread these birthdays. But I'll tell you what, for folks out there in TV land, what I would love more than anything in the world is if you're out there, you're listening and you love the show, give us a like on LinkedIn. Give us a little, shoot a question our way. I'd love nothing more for my birthday to hear from our audience. So if you're out there, give us a shout. Before we get started, guys, maybe not everyone is familiar with you guys. So let's do 30 seconds of who you are and why. So, uh, Mr. Bill Flaherty, give us a little bit of your background. Yeah. So uh, I started off in mechanical and aerospace engineering, got my PhD at the University of Illinois in Aero. Since then, I've worked for a number of companies where I've really specialized in taking cool ideas and turning them into engineered piece of, pieces of hardware. So worked for GE Aviation, working on commercial jet engines for them. MIT Lincoln Laboratory helped develop new sensor and communication systems. And now I'm here at Very helping uh, us deliver great hardware to our clients to, to realize their connected device dreams. Awesome. And Rob, if anybody in IoT needs no introduction, it's you. But for those that just crawled out of a cave, 30 seconds if you would. Sure. I got my start driving submarines, then dove into the startup world, did IoT in the 90s, believe it or not, with vending machines, spent my career in IoT, telecom, and mobile, You know, built mobile device management companies, sold that, spent a lot of my career at Microsoft. If anybody remembers Windows Phone with the tiles, yeah, that was me. Building Azure IoT, that was fun, building a global IoT platform. Built Lumata, which is an industrial IoT platform at Hitachi. Uh, and then I spent the last several years at Ericsson, you know, focuses on 5G for the win. So there you have it. You never want to be the person that has to give their bio after Rob has gone. That's lesson learned. <laughs> so guys, let's go to the audience. Our first question comes to us from New York City. Ben, thanks for being on Over the Air. What's on your mind? Thanks, Ryan. Just how popular is 5G? CBRS in the IIoT world. 
how many deployments can be verified, what about security options for data in industrial use cases, what methods are being deployed? Great question. Thanks, Ben. All right, guys. So 5G, CBRS. Rob, this is right in the sweet spot of your passion. What is 5G? What's its relationship with CBRS? Thoughts, answers, ready, set, go. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, 5G is our newest G. It means faster cat videos. It means you've got more capacity in the network. And what I mean by that, a bigger pipe, like all those smart city projects that you wanted to do, but it turns out you clogged up the network along the way. With 5G, you can have a million concurrently connected devices per cell tower within like a one kilometer radius around that. So that's pretty cool. Lower latency. Gosh, there's so many new features, you know, network slicing where you can do quality of service and have privacy and better security sliced off, almost like private networks. And kind of to lead into private networks, CBRS is this big facilitator of private networks. I know it might seem strange to call it private networks. We've been doing that forever. People have had Ethernet networks, and most companies have Wi-Fi access points all throughout their campuses. Factories have them. CBRS is something, and there's equivalents in different countries, but CBRS is a U.S. thing. But basically what it is, is it's related to spectrum. So what you may or may not know is whenever there's a new G, 2G, 3G, 4G, which is LTE, and then 5G, mobile operators have to go. There's a, a government, each government around the world has a spectrum auction. So spectrum is just frequencies up in the air that says we're going to auction off this bandwidth of frequencies because operators will have to get new bandwidth, new frequencies in order to traverse their 5G stuff, right? That data and those voice and all that traffic. So the problem is it's always, it's super expensive. We're talking tens of billions of dollars, and it's always been the domain of mobile operators. As you can imagine, private enterprises, manufacturers, factories, warehouses, they'd love to be in that game too. They would love to have private 5G or private LTE for that matter inside a warehouse or a distribution center or a factory rather than zillions of Wi-Fi access points everywhere. CBRS is a mechanism by which these private enterprises can they they work with the government, in this case the US government, and they basically say, "Hey, I want to carve out like, you know, maybe a 5-mile radius in this county in this state of spectrum and the CBRS spectrum, I think it's like around 3.5 gigahertz. You know, this is all geeky stuff. It doesn't matter, folks. But basically, it lets you carve it out and say, yes, you get it. It's low cost. It's not crazy billions like operators having to do. And then you can do, there's lots of vendors that are providing private 5G gear. You can imagine it looking like stuff that an IT professional might use. And you would deploy this maybe around a distribution center And they may look like little smoke detectors that you put up. But the great thing about private 5G, which is facilitated by the CBRS stuff, is better speed, better roaming around a building than you get with Wi-Fi. You know, this kind of handoff between access point to access point isn't so hot all the time. Better characteristics with heavy metal objects, actually. So when, you know, I personally have been seeing a lot of manufacturers kicking the tires around the world. There's other countries that have equivalent to CBRS. And so uh, we could see a, a revolution where people move from lots of Wi-Fi to private 5G because of programs like CBRS. But it'll be a big fight because uh, Wi-Fi 6E isn't going to go quietly into the night. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Bill, thoughts? Yeah, I think 
Rob pretty eloquently. I don't have a ton to add, but I would say, you know, I think the big thing that'll be really interesting is how we develop IoT devices that kind of fit into this network, right? And, you know, right now we design for things that have uh, Wi-Fi because you can assume that most basically any person that you're going to drop into their industrial site, they're going to have Wi-Fi set up. And so as we start to see this, uh, this shift into 5G CBRS, it'll be really interesting. You know, there'll be a market now for devices that are 5G, but not intending to talk to a cell tower, right? They're intending to talk to these internal networks that are private inside, say, like a factory or a mine or something like that. So it's really going to be interesting to watch, you know, how do chip manufacturers respond to that? And uh, and what are some cho- smart choices we're going to make as we design this kind of next generation of, of IIoT devices? You know, I would also say you're going to get better security than you have with Wi-Fi, for instance. In addition to all the gear that you're going to deploy around your warehouse or factory or corporate campus, you actually get a SIM card writer. This could be for eSIMs or whatever you're using. And basically, the takeaway is the only IoT devices or or phones or anything that can be on your private network, they have to be from your SIM writer that you had. And so you don't have outsiders. There's no way. The whole thing is encrypted. So you don't have outside folks intruding on your, your network. The other thing to remember, too, is the difference between licensed spectrum and unlicensed spectrum. Wi-Fi is unlicensed. Things like LoRaWAN are unlicensed. And so you can have possible interference from other neighbors, potentially, when you have unlicensed. When you do the CBRS, you get licensed stuff, and you're going to be locked down in your area. And so you'll, you don't have to worry about noisy neighbors poking their heads into your factory. Just don't build your factory next to a uh, U.S. Navy shipyard or you might run into some trouble since uh, I think they're the priority user of CBRS. That could be a problem. No bueno. Are you talking to an ex-Navy guy here too? Our second question comes to us from Pam out of Maryland. She wants to know how she can drive lean into her org without scaring everybody. Pam, thanks for being on Over the Air. What's on your mind? Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So we're introducing more principles of lean into our production teams. And, you know, so far, so good. We're actually not even using the word lean. We're deliberately avoiding that word as we're kind of afraid folks on the floor and our technicians will will associate it with bad things, right? Potential job loss, downsizing. And like, that's not the truth at all. So, you know, my company is deeply committed to our associates most of our folks have been with us for decades at this point, and our culture is super strong. So I'm curious if you have run into other manufacturing teams who have really successfully implemented agile lean practices and sh- been able to like show the tail of the tape of how it retains associates, gets them focused on higher value work, like all of the good things that, that should come along with lean if, if done right. So it sounds like Pam's question is lean in the traditional Toyota sense of the word. What's you guys' thoughts on this? Yeah, I think, you know, you can think of lean agile in kind of two different ways, right? And it's traditional manufacturing instantiation, really like, you know, pioneered by Toyota, but then also in how we use it for product development, where we do kind of these agile methodologies that are, are really influenced by that classic lean. But yeah, I think, you know, if we're taking it at uh, in the manufacturing sense, like we said, a lot of these big corporations have been doing lean successfully for for decades, right? Uh, Toyota is the big example. Ryan, I know you love your John Deere. They're another great uh, example of a manufacturer that does uh, that does lean methods. And so, you know, it's it's not really about reducing headcount, which is what it sounded like the question was concerned about, so much as you know ensuring that people are working on the right tasks at the right time. And I think there's kind of this common misconception that lean means cost cutting. And I think, you know, you've seen some companies that have taken that direction where they 
they think lean in more terms of like, oh, cutting costs, cutting jobs, things like that. But that's not really the core of, of what lean means. It's, you know, if applied responsibly, I think by an employee who cares about their, their employees, it can result in uh, efficiency gains without having to cut, you know, significant headcount or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Lean manufacturing has been a revolution that almost everyone's adopted. All the manufacturers around the world have adopted. I got to spend a lot of time in Japanese factories in my time at Hitachi and to get to see it firsthand. You know, one of the attributes of lean manufacturing is any person on the assembly line can shut down the line at any time when they see problems. And so it is about, it's not just efficiency, it's about reducing defects. This is all, you know, but it's interesting to tie it in with the Internet of Things, industrial IoT, IoT is a real helper to facilitate the success you know, of lean manufacturing. Because what are we seeing right now with the supply chain disruptions, right? People before lean manufacturing used to have lots of inventory laying around, right? Kind of that buffer, just in case. Then we went to lean and we went to all this just-in-time stuff, right? Which is more cost-effective and it's been better, but it's also designed for perfection with your supply chain. Obviously, we've seen what happens when your supply chain is no longer perfect. It's not right now. And so that disruption is causing people to not get the products they've ordered. It's causing problems in shipping and trucking coming right out of the factory. And so the part of what IoT helps is when those industrial robots on an assembly line making whatever they're making, making cars, you know, if one of those robots goes down, the whole line goes down and it disrupts that whole cool lean just in time thing, doesn't it? It ripples out to the distributor that's expecting that car or that widget to come off the line. And it ripples out to the shippers, the truckers, and the end retailers and the customers. When you've got IoT in those digital twins of your industrial robots, letting you know ahead of time that there's a problem coming, you know, predicting failure or alerting you just as it happens you're less likely to have that downtime. And so lean just-in-time manufacturing ties right into why we're doing industrial IoT. That uptime is going to mean that we don't have that horrible ripple effect that affects so many people because nobody wants to have their assembly line going down and losing $300,000 an hour. Nobody wants their drilling rig in West Texas to go down and losing a million dollars an hour. It's We've got this perfection going with our lean supply chains and IoT is going to help keep it going. I think one of the things, Rob, that's really interesting kind of additionally to that with the IIoT is uh, its implications for assisting with like strategic decision making, right? Because you're getting all of this data over time. And as you start to try and use that data to improve your lean process, you have all that at your fingertips to help really make smart, informed, strategic decisions about where do you want to invest? Where are your bottlenecks? Things like that that can really help you know, add a, a level of depth to your decision making that just wasn't there before that you had to make more of a gut feel on. Absolutely. That is so true. We're not a supply chain show, but I, I do have one follow-up question for you guys. Just in time has I feel I feel like it's been, I don't want to say totally exposed, but like, you know, we've really in the last few years seen some of the holes in this thing. The world is not a perfect place. And, you know, I don't know, occasionally there's invasions, occasionally a nuclear plant explodes or, or a tsunami, I guess, causes it to whatever, you know, different things that are very, you know, hard to, to uh, foresee occur. For example, at the time of this recording today, Shanghai is almost completely as standstill. What do you think 
I see there, we're going to talk later in the program about edge computing. I think that's our next caller. Do you think we're going to see a move towards edge inventory as well, like away from this kind of centralized, one country makes everything, one factory is the center of gravity, and towards you know a little bit more of a distributed approach to supply chain? Then it, I mean, this just in time, it feels like it leaves such small slack in the system and such, yeah, I'm just curious, what are you guys' thoughts in, in this world as we sit here in 2022? If people are listening in 23, I'd be surprised if it was a lot different. Are there parallels between this movement towards edge computing and what we might begin to see in the supply chain, especially, you know, as we roll IoT out into some of these facilities? You know what? I think it's always going to be a cooperative type thing between edge and cloud with with IoT, to be honest with you. You know, a well-known term in supply chain management is the notion of a control tower. And nothing looks like a control tower overseeing all of your supply chain operations like a global cloud, right? That being said, it's going to need all that local stuff at the edge. And sometimes, as we've seen, you might get cut off. And that connectivity back to that big cloud control tower for supply chain management, that it might get severed. And so you've got the endpoints, the things that are moving, the products that are moving, managing fleets of trucks, managing cargo ships going across oceans, seeing the congestion like we are seeing right now, like at Long Beach, the port there. I think that collaborative stuff, whenever whenever that connection, kind of like you're talking about with Shanghai, if that connection to your control tower cloud gets severed, we're absolutely going to have to rely on edge computing and edge IoT to pick up the slack and keep things trucking for us, which is why you have to be able to you know, a lot of times when you're doing edge computing with IoT, you know, you're still maybe doing something from the cloud, like your control panel, your the analytics you're going to push down to your orchestrated devices all start from a central location, but they have to be able to keep operating on their own, right? Yeah, I think like one of the things with just-in-time manufacturing, in order for it to work properly, you need to have the robustness in the system that when the time comes, you can spin up. Right. And I think one thing that we've seen seen over the last couple of years is that that robustness actually wasn't in the system, right? It, you know, over time, complacency set in, things that should have been robust were allowed to, to wither a little bit, right? And then when the time actually came, when you needed to spin up, the, it wasn't there. And I think that's a great lesson to learn is, you know, just because we have the cloud, right, we can't let the robustness go to waste or we can't let that fall away, right? You have to have that robust backup so that when the time comes, it's there to back you up, right? It's easy to devalue that when things are working well and things have been working well for you know years and years and years. But then you never know when the rainy day is going to come. And if you're not prepped, then you're going to be uh, caught flat-footed. It's definitely raining right now, isn't it, Bill? <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> it's raining right now. And you know, one of the really interesting parallels to the supply chain um, example, longtime listeners will know I do, I like to compete in Ironman events. And you know, endurance athletes are just in time athletes. They are very thin. They do not have the fat stores to complete these races without just in time nutrients along the course. And you want to see, you want to watch a just in time system implode on itself. Watch what happens when one aid station is removed and you're going to, you know, huge number of athletes don't have the, the stores of fat and energy to skip a station. And it's really a microcosm of you know, I think today's supply chain, you, you remove even one small link in the chain, 
and the resources aren't there to, you, know, you can't reallocate efficiently. You totally nailed it. I nailed it. It's my birthday episode, okay? I can be as weird as I want to be. <laughs> it's your birthday episode. You're an Iron Man. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to our next caller. Our next question comes to us from Justin. He's a product manager stuck between two worlds. Justin, where are you calling from and what's on your mind? Hey, Ryan. I'm a product manager and I sit between the company's IT team and the uh, engineers at our plant. Our IT team's chomping at the bit to modernize the factory. Uh, Just the basics, uh, of course, uh, predictive maintenance, improving traceability, uh, less downtime, stuff like that. The plant teams are struggling as every idea seems risky and costly. They know they can't afford any setbacks and considering developing new technology, and upgrading systems is to be full of potholes. And uh, you know, where do we start to find common ground and, and build trust without blowing things up? Awesome question. So it sounds like Justin is an example that at Very, we see a lot. Uh, people that are caught between two worlds. What's you guys' guidance to someone like Justin? So I think this is a case, right, where uh, really agile development processes can play an important role because I'd say the goal of Agile, right, is to deliver value quickly and in small slices rather than taking kind of huge bites all at once, right? And that that seems to be what the folks at uh, at Justin's factory are, are concerned about is like, hey, if we dive all in on this and we invest a ton of money, are, are we going to get bit by it? So if you start small and you learn by doing, then you can avoid that risk of, of diving in too deep too quickly, right? And so, you know, maybe choose one machine, one workflow, something manageable that won't make folks nervous uh, and really execute an end-to-end modernization plan just on that thin slice, right? And see how that does. Then you can prove that value to your stakeholders without putting a huge amount of the factory at risk, making people really nervous. And then once you've done that, once you've proved that value, you can do it again and again and again and again. And you just repeat that cycle until, you know, you look back in in a year or two and and your whole factory is modernized, right? And you did it without having to put this huge amount of risk into the system right at the start. Wow. I love it. I would say that the product manager should also wear Kevlar which that's probably helpful in this situation because, you know, they called out IT and you're doing some kind of great project. But as soon as you said the word plant and engineers, you're talking about the opposing team, the OT engineering team. And when IT and OT get together, I mean, we're trying to have a love fest because this whole industrial IoT and industry 4.0 demands it. That being said, depending on where you are, it's not always as smooth as you'd like, you know, Operational technology guys typically don't like IT people at all. Most of them I've met think IT is the source of every problem that they've ever had. You know, all the viruses, all the whatever things going down. They're like, we didn't have that before these IT people came along. And so as we do this OT-IT convergence, right, which which is what we're all trying to do, it takes a lot of thoughtfulness and the IT folks really need to sit in the shoes of the OT folks and be good listeners and don't show up like they know it all because it's it's a good way to get shut down. You might know it all, but it's all about people skills, right? And empathy. And in this case, you've got to have a you've got to show a lot of love to the and OT folks. It's so folks. easy to make that mistake that like technology is the solution to everything. Right. But really, it's it's relationships. Right. We see this time and time again at Very is like if you don't have that relationship, it doesn't matter how good your technology is. You're not going to be successful. You are so right. 
Those relationships are the most important thing. They'll shut it you down feels otherwise. Like, you know, the IT team is highly incentivized to want to experiment, you know, and see what works. The OT team is saying if 19 out of 20 approaches are not successful, that, you know, like one time out of 20, that's the maximum threshold for bugginess, something that made things work less efficiently. And then you've got this third constituent group that's the least discussed, which is, I think, like the executive leadership team who's looking at things maybe with the longest lens of the three. And they're saying, hey, if four out of 20 work, but 10 of the failures show long-term promise, that is an acceptable failure rate. That's a very high failure rate. It seems to me that's the only way to explain why we see some of the experimentation that we see, some of the adoption that we see, because some of this stuff does not seem set up for success. It seems to be set up for success if you're looking at things, like if you're taking a decades view and you're saying, okay, listen, automation, for example, in factories, some of these factories, some of these robots are gonna blow up, you know, but this is the long-term play here for our Acme Incorporated, you know, because of uh, labor rates or, you know, robots don't take uh, breaks in the middle of the night. Therefore, throughput could 10 years from now be significantly higher. What are you guys' view on this third constituent group? You know, the, the executives out there, or if you're not, okay, let's remove the constituent group. For people looking at this on a decades long view, do you think that changes the calculus on what technology is worth adopting or attempting to adopt? Yeah. I mean, a few thoughts in my mind about that. You know, ultimately, like when you talk about the executives, let's just say they're the folks who actually run the company. And both sides of that equation, OT and IT, they all roll up to the same folks. And they're supposed to, you know, get in line and do, you know, that being said, say the word agile to somebody in the OT side, and they'll be like, yeah, get out of the factory right now. You know, lots of people diving into industrial IoT naively thought, they were going to walk into the factory and I'm going to connect to your machines. And that hasn't happened in, in large part. Usually you're lucky if they let you talk to a PLC and suck some data off of there. The idea of command and control, it's like, nope, I'm, I've got this machine just perfect. It's humming along. Don't touch it. Stay away. So to answer your question more fully, though, I would say, like we do in software and other projects, let's talk about how we build additions to a highway. You move people off the side and you build something that's in parallel to the main highway so that traffic keeps going. And so you need to have kind of a test bed mini factory or whatever it is where you get to try out all these potentially risky experiments and see how it works out there in parallel instead of trying to go right into the, you know, because going right into the factory and trying these things is almost equivalent to, hey, let's make changes to our software in production on our live system, right? Yeah, and I That's think where the, the important at. thing, I, I love that idea of kind of this, this parallel test bed, right, where you can work some of these things out because there are going to be failures, right? If you're trying to take a big swing, there's going to be failures and they're going to be ugly. Ryan, I'll use a great example that I know you'll love is like test, is a uh, is SpaceX landing that rocket on a boat in the middle of the ocean, right? Like you're going to blow up some boats and that's going to happen in your factory. And if you're doing that on the floor, on the main line, man, you're going to make some enemies on that factory team real quick, right? And then then that's where you see the kiss of death with some of these programs. And so having a space where you can experiment, where failure is is tolerated and is okay, is really critical to some of these long-term bets to see them pay off. That's such a great point. You know, 
just bringing up SpaceX, like when we watched all the videos of Starship going up and then blowing up multiple times, it's going sideways. But you hear from Elon, it's like, no, the test was, I just needed it to go here. Whatever happened after that, it's no big deal. I'm sure a traditional factory OT whatever engineer is initially horrified at that. Whereas Elon is practicing the kind of life that we all live and saying, nope, that wasn't part of the test. I don't care if the, the spaceship blows up after that. You know, it's a new paradigm. It's great for people like us to have someone like Elon <laughs> kind of leading the way and showing it in a giant way to the whole world that this is where we're headed yeah, with Industry 4.0. I think 4-0. this is why a lot of people look at and admire Elon Musk. You know, so maybe some of the comments and things he does in the short term are a little bit of a head scratcher, but he takes these very bold views. And, you know, Bill mentioned you're going to blow up a lot of uh, landing pads and he blew up a lot of rockets. You know, I mean, they were not reusable initially. Those were ashtrays initially and very expensive <laughs> ones. And, you know, so I'll close with this, Rob. It feels like the connective tissue amongst today's caller was organizational change, both inevitable, but excruciatingly slow at times, especially in the industrial commercial world. We sit here, 2022, how do you think this is gonna play out over the course of this decade? We're gonna blow up a lot of rockets, (laughs) but we're gonna do it, but then we're gonna press on. I think we're gonna get both sides of the house together is what we're going to do. And we're going to learn from each other and we're going to teach each other and we're going to go a little slower and we will do things in parallel. And then, you know, the whole goal of Industry 4.0 is to arrive at that destination. There's a bunch of things that they want to hit by 2030. And so, you know, we've got most of this decade to make mistakes and get better and learn and learn to work with each other so that we can arrive at that destination. All right, let's call that a wrap for today. We're out of time, but what an episode. Guys, thank you so much for helping me co-host this today. And thank you guys so much out there in TV land for joining us. Remember, this is a new format. If you like this, let us know. And if you have a question or you have an idea for a topic, let us know. Give us a shout on LinkedIn and we will put it on the air. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we discuss what went wrong on a journey that went right. See you guys on the internet. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.